This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Jared Cohen is the author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. In addition to his studies of presidential history, Jared is also the founder and CEO of Jigsaw. He serves as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and served in the State Department under Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. I can't thank Jared enough for his time and his insight that he brought into these accidental presidencies. In addition to Jared, I'd also like to thank Stephen Bedford of Simon & Schuster and Jared's scheduler, Dan Kaiserling, for helping to make this interview possible. I'd also like to throw out a special thanks to Les and Susan for helping me to brainstorm questions beforehand. I'll have more information on the website, which is presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B, rry.com. Thanks so much for listening. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. We are joined today by Jerry Cohen, who is the author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, a book which has made the New York Times bestseller list. Jerry has been making the rounds, sharing his insight on these eight presidents, and graciously agreed to join us here on Presidencies. Welcome, Jerry, and congratulations on the book. Um, I know this has been a fulfillment of a lifelong passion for you. Uh, that's right. Thank you for having me. Um, I, it, it, it's true. This is the resurrection of a childhood curiosity. And I believe that we do our best work when we chase our, our curiosities. And my parents, when I was eight years old, they bought me a book about the presidents. It was one of those rhyming books, one president, one page. And to their surprise, they had to have eight conversations with me about death, four conversations <laughs> with me about assassination. And my poor parents, you know, they didn't even know who William McKinley was, let alone having to explain to me what it means to, to be shot by an anarchist. Um, <laughs> so my entire life, I've been reading biographies of these eight men who were never supposed to be president, who changed the course of history, both for good and for ill. And I spent the last six years digging into these transitions. And I think it combines all the things that I'm interested in, history, politics, and just random musings on leadership. Absolutely. And, and it's amazing how those, those childhood passions can become a lifelong endeavor. Um, as somebody who used to drag the encyclopedias all down on the floor and research presidential history, I know how that is. So, <laughs> well, let's go ahead and um, we'll start with kind of the first uh, couple of accidental presidents, because um, that's actually an area of presidential history that's a fascination of mine as well you know the 1840s and 1850s was such a time of change uh, in society and technology and also as you all know in presidential and, and uh, political history so I was going to see um, how do you think that the sudden loss of two presidents within a 10-year time span um, impacted the course of American history and how was it perceived at the time? So 
One of the things that's astonishing to me in this book is from the period of 1841 to 1963, the president of the United States literally died every 20, 10 to 20 years. And so you've had eight presidents die in office, another 19 nearly die in office. And what we realize is when it comes to presidential succession, despite that statistical probability, we've essentially winged presidential succession throughout our history. Um, and you had these sort of non-entities end up being elevated to the pinnacle of power with the exception of, of Teddy Roosevelt and maybe one or two others. Um, and they're presiding over some of the most important moments in our in our country. If I look at you know the 1840s and 1850s when John Tyler and Millard Fillmore ascended to the presidency, I think this was the most polarized moment in American history. This was the time when a senator pulled a gun on another senator and tried to murder him right there in the chamber, when a member of the House of Representatives came over to the Senate and beat a senator, you know, nearly unconscious uh, with his cane, you know, a time when duels were common, brawls in Congress were common. You know, you know, today, you know, it's interesting when people talk about polarization today, that the meanest thing that anyone does is write a nasty tweet about somebody. Um, um, so all of the, you, you had the most frequent transitions happening during the most polarized moment in history. And yet when we talk about what could have been done to stop the Civil War and, you know, this and that, one of the things that often gets lost in history is the impact that these abrupt transitions had. So if we walk through them, when William Henry Harrison dies after just 30 days in office, John Tyler, who was only thrown onto the ticket um, because they needed a state's rightist from Virginia, ends up you know, spending his first three months fighting with the cabinet and fighting with Congress, insisting that he's the president because the Constitution's pretty vague about whether he's acting president or, in fact, the president. Um, he ends up getting kicked out of the Whig Party just months, um, just months later, um, ends up as a president without a party. And like all accidental presidents, he wants to seek election in his own right. And so he decides the best way to change the political discourse, disrupt the system and have a shot at the presidency is to covertly annex Texas. Um, so he does that. And the annexation of Texas in 1844 guarantees war with Mexico, which the U.S. wins, which leads to the Mexican session, which leads to a sectional crisis, which leads to the Civil War. Exactly. And, and it's fascinating and, and especially thinking about all those transitions and all the transitions of leadership. And uh, one of the things I was fascinated with um, was your discussion of how, you know, adding Tyler to the ticket, even though it was to try and get those states rightist, did it really work? And in, in so many cases with these choices of vice presidents, did the aim of why they were put on the ticket, did it really play out like that? So this is a really important question that I address in each chapter in the book, and it's relevant even today. There's only four reasons in history why somebody has become the vice president. Um, the first is to win a state. Uh, the second is to appease a constituency or faction within the party. Um, the third is because they're available, since throughout most of our history, nobody wants to be vice president. Um, and then fourth is as political punishment. And with the exception of the availability piece, there's no evidence that any of the three others um, end up working. So it's very common that the, the, the ticket loses the state uh, that the vice president is from. Um, you know, from when they when Tippy Canoe and Tyler II lost Virginia all the way to when Clinton Gore lost Tennessee. Um, you know, there's um, no evidence that, you know, treating the vice presidency as the equivalent of a, you know, the political equivalent of exiling somebody to Elba works because that was supposed to be Teddy Roosevelt's punishment. Um, and he ends up being thrust into the presidency. Um, so it's, it's just kind of, you know, and then even if you look at Chester Arthur thrown onto the ticket, 
to appease the stalwarts um, and the, the the proponents of the spoil system, you know, Arthur ends up signing the Pendleton Act when he becomes president, which abolishes the spoil system and creates the modern day civil service. So, so it's interesting that every campaign going all the way back to the earliest of times falls into the same trap of treating the vice president like a political gimmick um, to accomplish one of those three goals. And we still kind of don't get the message and we still fall into this trap every single time and you see it happening again. Absolutely. Every, every four years, <laughs> every four or eight. Um, well, and, and going back to something that you touched on earlier, because this was a point that I wanted to bring up with you to get your insight on. Um, in terms of the violence, and you talk about uh, in the book, um, even on the floor of Congress, you know, the street fight on the House floor after Tyler's second veto, and then um, Senators Foote and Benton uh, during the Compromise of 1850 debate. Uh, were you surprised at how much physical violence there was in Congress at that time leading up to the Civil War? Yeah, so it's interesting. You would think writing a book about eight presidents dying in office would leave you with a melancholy, leave you in kind of a melancholy state of mind. Um, but it le the book left me pretty optimistic because what I found myself doing in the six years that I was writing this book was reassuring people that politics today, maybe it isn't as bad as they think. Um, you know, what you realize, if you look at everything that's happening today, there's a worse version of it that happened in history. Um, but but and, and it, it is interesting to me. I mean, the notion that, you know, people would pack heat um, in the chamber of the Senate or the House of Representatives or the idea that, you know, two senators sitting next to each other, you know, would have bullets that were still lodged in their body from having fought duels with each other. Um, or the fact that it was a bragging right for Andrew Jackson that he'd been in multiple, multiple brawls or that Henry Foote, it was like a rite of passage. Um, as a senator from Mississippi to have, you know, been shot twice in two different, you know, duels. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising. But I also think the nature of the presidency has changed. It's hard for us to imagine today because the president has like a thousand people protecting them. There's a big gate around the White House. For most of our history, it took three presidents being assassinated, Lincoln, Garfield and McKinley, for us to decide that it makes sense to protect the president in peacetime. Before that, anybody could just walk into the White House. The president's days were consumed meeting with office seekers. In the case of in the case of Garfield, the man who ultimately shot James Garfield had spent many days um, waiting in the White House to you know ask the president for for patronage. Um, so the, the 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 original vision of the president was that you know in a democracy unlike a monarchy, they should be a man of the people and walking around. And I found myself sort of frustrated writing this book, because I don't really understand how we, we failed to appreciate this. I mean, Andrew Jackson is shot at point blank as president. Um, the gun malfunctions, a one in 125,000 chance of that happening. He then beats the assailant who thinks he's the king of England with his cane. And nobody bothers to do one of two things, say, maybe we should protect the president. And two, since some of the founding fathers are alive, maybe we should ask them what they meant um, when they said, if there's a vacancy in the presidency, the duties of the presidency shall fall to the to the beep. Um, and, and so I was just like frustrated that, that, that we don't learn our lesson despite the frequency with which this happened. And the conclusion you come to is, you know, it's not a pleasant thing if you're in office to think about your own mortality. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, and, and that was fascinating. And, and it does bring up, you know, there are still issues today, as you highlight in your book. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was uh, as late in history as Dick Cheney and thinking about what happens if the vice president is incapable of serving. There's really no mechanism to remove them right now like there is with the president. And so we've still got some of those questions that we're, we're trying to work out. And it is fascinating that it, it does. It's so far in presidential history before we get some basic questions answered, like, for example, filling the vice presidency. You know, the fact that for so long it would, you know, there, there was a vacancy in the vice presidency when this is supposed to be the person who, if something happens to the president, they immediately assume the office after Tyler and all of that. Um, so that that was fascinating. And, and I think it is food for thought. And I think it, it highlights why it's important to study history. And to your point, uh, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was this reflection on you know, having so many people ask me about presidential history and have things been as divided as they are now. And yeah, there have been times of uncertainty back to the very beginning. Um, but in history, we can find comfort that there have been people who have been through this before and they found their way through. Um, we're going to make mistakes just like they did in the past, but we'll, we'll find our way through this. But this sustained constitutional vulnerability is very interesting, right? So um, we forget that, again, when John Tyler is when, when William Henry Harrison dies in office, it's not obvious that Tyler is the president. If you look at the language of the Constitution, um, I think that I think it looks more like the framers wanted an acting president um, than they wanted a, a, a president. Right. So but Tyler sets this precedent in 1841. And we forget as recently as LBJ, LBJ becomes president um, in 1963 based on a precedent set by John Tyler in 1841. And that precedent is not formalized by law until you have the 25th Amendment ratified in 1967. The other thing that is really astonishing, and I write about this extensively in, in the book, is of the eight accidental presidents, six of them nearly die in office. Um, John Tyler is nearly killed on a ship explosion that kills almost half the cabinet. Andrew Johnson is basically on his deathbed um, just a month or two into office, enough that they telegram Lafayette Sabine Foster, who's the president pro tem and out west, that he needs to rush back to Washington because the president might be dying. He, of course, ignores that. Chester Arthur was dying of Bright's disease as early as 1882. You had Teddy Roosevelt, who a year after becoming president, a trolley uh, hits his carriage. He flies 30 feet, lands face down, it kills his driver, it kills his bodyguard, who's the first member of the Secret Service killed in the line of duty. Harry Truman is nearly killed by Puerto Rican rebels. Um, Lyndon Johnson had a history of heart trouble um, and so forth. So you know, the only ones that, that don't you know, um, almost die in office are Millard Fillmore and Calvin Coolidge. So the question is, if you had six of the eight accidental presidents nearly die in office, what would happen if they died? And there was no provision for replacing the vice president until 1967 with the 25th Amendment. So the Constitution was very clear 
that the next in line, which varies depending on which presidential succession act is active, um, that the next in line is an acting president and it's the secretary of state's job uh, to call a special election for the following November. Mm. Exactly. And, and the fact that there were so many questions and so many questions for so long and not just you know, with the vice president assuming the presidency or who would assume the presidency if the vice presidency was vacant, um, but also in the cabinet. And, you know, you highlight in the book the different approaches to it. You have Fillmore, who you know, makes everybody resign, but then you have others who retain cabinet members. You know, John Tyler, he retained uh, Harrison's cabinet in Chill. They fell out over the the bank veto. But one of the ones that was really fascinating to me, and I was wondering if, if you might speak to this, um, in terms of the, the succession from Lincoln to Andrew Johnson, and you see these key cabinet members, um, you know, like Seward and Stanton, that remain with Johnson, uh, although uh, he didn't really want um, Stanton in the office, but, you know, Seward and um, Gideon Wells, did you get any sense of why they remained in the cabinet, why they didn't resign? Did it, was it more of a sense of duty to the nation or just because they, there was really no set precedent on what a cabinet was supposed to do upon the death of the president? Yeah, I think so. I think in the context of Andrew Johnson, he's the first accidental president to rise during a time of war. Um, so it, it was an unprecedented situation in that sense. And I think that, you know, I always, it's always risky as a historian to get in the heads of dead people. Um, but if I think about Gideon Wells, if I think about, um, uh, you know, if I think about Secretary Seward, um, I think they felt a sense of duty to Lincoln. But I think look, the, the, when we look back on the Civil War, it's easy to say, okay, the Civil War ended and then we had Reconstruction. The line between Civil War and Reconstruction is very blurry, um, right? So not in the sense of, of you know, a formal treaty and so forth, but I think that they, they their sense of duty continues well into Reconstruction. And it's compounded by the fact that Andrew Johnson, this, people people get this wrong. When I, when I set out to write the chapter on Lincoln and Johnson. I called it Lincoln's choice. And I did that for a reason, because the one stain on Lincoln's record is Andrew Johnson as vice president. And back then, the president didn't choose the running mate, but Lincoln Lincoln actually did. He did it as a secret intrigue um, to swap Hamlin uh, with, with Johnson. And so you wonder, how could he be so reckless? But you look at who Andrew Johnson was in 1864, and there's no better choice. He was a war Democrat from a border state, which is the obvious part. But Johnson, who owed everything to the Union, hated the Southern aristocracy. And yes, he was born a racist. Yes, he died a racist. Um, no, he didn't care about civil rights. But yes, he cared more about the preservation of the Union than anything else. So as soon as the first shots were fired on Fort Sumter, all he cared about was putting the Union back together. He was the only Southern senator to stay loyal to the Union. He believed that the best way to reunite the Union was to break the Confederacy. The best way to break the Confederacy was to break slavery and punish all the traitors. Um, so his rhetoric on civil rights and punishment of traitors is more forward-leaning um, in 1864 than even Abraham Lincoln. Enough that when Jefferson Davis is captured um, and accused of plotting Lincoln's assassination, it, he almost laughs. He's like, are you crazy? Why, why on earth would I want Andrew Johnson instead of Abraham Lincoln, a man so treasonous and devilish to the South? You know, you know, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln seemed soft compared to Andrew Johnson. And the radical Republicans, I think part of the reason they went after him 
with impeachment. Um, and one of the reasons they developed such animosity towards him was the whiplash of thinking that with Lincoln's assassination, they got one of their own. I mean, they thought he they basically thought he was a radical Republican. He sounded like it um, all the way until the Civil War ended. And then once the Civil War ends, Johnson, following his principle of preservation of the Union, it's all about, OK, the Southern, you know, let, let's get them reintegrated. So let's just give amnesty to everybody. Let the states deal with civil rights. Let's just do this really quick and get on with it. He wasn't thinking about, you know, the fact that, you know, Alexander Stevens, who was the Confederate vice president, might end up in Congress. He wasn't thinking about the resurrection of the old elements of the Confederacy. All he cared about is that the country wasn't at war and they got on with it. And the consequences were devastating. Right. So I always say the story of civil rights and post Civil War America is a story of two presidential assassinations: Lincoln's assassination, which gave us Andrew Johnson, which gave us the black codes, which gave us segregation and James Garfield. Um, who was elected unattached to party politics with a mission to bring universal suffrage and universal education um, and the ability to do it since he wasn't supposed to get the nomination in 1880 being assassinated four months into his office. He was the only man who I think could have reversed some of what Andrew Johnson started. And that actually brings up an interesting point. Uh, one of the questions I had was, did you get a sense from your research how a full term for Garfield would have differed from um, the Arthur presidency? Because you, you credit Arthur for um, helping support efforts for civil service reform and for creating the modern U.S. Navy. You think that those still would have been important uh, pieces of the Garfield presidency? Or would it he have had other priorities? And considering how... Um, antagonistic uh, Arthur and uh, Roscoe Conkling were against Garfield, do you think that he would have had the opportunity to be successful? Yeah. So Arthur has one of the great turnarounds of any vice president. And, you know, I almost want to say like, his presidency was average. But if you think about where he came from, he he, he gets the most improved award. Um, and the fact that a man who literally was the embodiment of the spoil system advocated for and signed the Pendleton Act is 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 one of the great twists in history's plot. Um, and uh, so if I think about Garfield's presidency, he was worn out by Arthur and Conkling. But if you look at July 2nd, 1881, it's the first day that he really feels like he begins his presidency. Remember, Conkling has resigned in, it, Conkling and, and, and Platt's scheme to resign to make a statement and get reelected completely fails. Um, Platt's disgraced in a sex scandal. Um, Conkling is humiliated um, and not reelected by the state, the state legislature. And, you know, and, and, and Arthur is essentially isolated. And Garfield has kind of come into his own. He, he comments as such. If you look at his writings, uh, he's about to take his vacation. He just gets shot the day that he basically, you know, not officially starts as president, but the, 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 his, on his day of political liberation, he gets shot. So I think that, you know, you would have had maybe a more aggressive version of the Pendleton Act because it takes a while to get it implemented um, and it's imperfect. Um, with Arthur, you don't get civil rights. And it's not, Arthur was actually a great champion for civil rights to his, his credit. I mean, and he, he was he was a lawyer, um, you know, who, who, who was a big abolitionist, um, but he just didn't, he didn't have the work ethic to take to take that on. I mean, he didn't work very hard. He, he, he decorated the White House and his advisors would walk around with a basket of important looking documents to create a perception that he was busy. Um, 
but he wasn't. What's what I so so I think that you would have. I, I really do think that if our if Garfield hadn't been shot, you may not have had to wait for the Civil Rights Act of 64, 65, and, and 68. Um, but I also wonder with Garfield, I don't think Garfield would have done the naval buildup. So the ABCD ships that, 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 that Arthur pushed for that prepared us for war with Spain. I haven't seen a lot of evidence in Garfield's rhetoric or what he cared about to suggest that that's something he would have championed. Yeah. Excellent. And, and that's, and it's fascinating just how these shifts in presidential history, you know, impact what happens after and have these major impacts in, you know, overall U.S. history. Um, one of the, the questions I had while I was um, reading the book, um, and as we get later on, we get four of the accidental presidents who are elected to terms in their own right. Did you get a sense of how their ascending to the presidency from the vice presidency impacted their decisions of who they chose as their running mate? Um, not really. It's, I mean, that's what's sort of interesting is the accidental presidents themselves should have been attuned to this, and, and they weren't. Yeah. Um, they, they gave very little thought to it. Um, so for some reason, we just don't think about the second spot of the ticket. I asked Henry Kissinger this because I, I did a number of interviews for the book with, you know, George H.W. Bush, with Kissinger, you know, Dick Cheney, Condi Rice, you know, a lot of others. And Kissinger's view is very, was very interesting, which is when you're the president of the United States, you don't really want to spend any time thinking about the vice presidency because it's just a reminder of your own mortality. Um, and you don't really want to do much engagement around the person who would benefit the most from you dropping dead. Exactly. Um, it's much more of a recent phenomenon. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's not really a lot of evidence that they gave it, that they gave it much thought. Well, and, and it really came to mind, uh, whenever you're talking about Truman and the assassination attempts against him and the fact that he chose Alvin Barkley, who was somebody who was well advanced in age as his vice president the person to su succeed him, um, that, that was one thing that came to mind. It's like, did, didn't you think about that this may be the person who replaces you? And, and it's interesting that, that it really doesn't seem like it did factor into that. No, it's, um, there's no evidence that they gave it much, that they gave it much thought, um, which, which is surprising, right? What, and, and what's interesting is a couple of them did, um, Andrew Johnson, Chester Arthur, and Harry Truman, um, and actually Lyndon Johnson, because of the, the 25th Amendment, um, all were involved in, in attempts, or both successful and unsuccessful, to revise presidential succession. So one of the first things Truman does as president is um, replace his, his Secretary of State. Um, because uh, under the Presidential Succession Act of 1886, um, they got rid of the President Pro Tem and the Speaker of House in the line of succession and replaced them with the cabinet. So with no vice president, the next in line to be president was the secretary of state. And Truman had believed very strongly that the next in line to the presidency should be somebody that was elected to some national office, which is why he, he which is why he courts Jim Burns so early on in his presidency. And that that also gets to, you know, that that they were that you have these presidents who are able to make changes to the presidency, to presidential succession. Um, did you get a sense from any of the eight? Because we, 
have this idea, the modern idea of the vice presidency, you know, the person in the room who goes to cabinet meetings, who's involved in the, the um, executive branch. But that wasn't always the case. And for so much of history, you have vice presidents that were shut out. Did you get a sense from any of the eight that had they continued to be vice president, that they would have actually been able to make a change to what the vice presidency was? There doesn't seem to be any appetite, um, even in the present, um, to formally change what the vice president is. Right. So you know, it just so happens that if you look at, you know, Mike Pence, Joe Biden, Dick Cheney, um, uh, you know, Al Gore, George H.W. Bush, that the vice president has been pretty integrated. But I think that's more of a reality of foreign policy um, becoming more pronounced um, than, than anything else. But there's no law that empowers the vice president to get intelligence briefings and prepare. There's nothing that protects us against a Harry Truman type situation where he wait, he wakes up after 82 days as vice president and hasn't gotten a single intelligence briefing, has only had two meetings with the president, isn't briefed on the atomic bomb, hasn't met any world leaders, isn't read into the happenings of Yalta, and then has to preside over the height of the war and shape the post-war order in his first four months. There's nothing that legally protects us against that situation and that legally empowers the vice president independently to be prepared and that obligates the vice president to be prepared, right? So Truman is left off the hook because he can't be seen preparing lest he be seen as anticipating FDR's mortality. And you could imagine how he would have gotten filleted for that. Whereas had there been a law that allowed him the space and the cover to do that, um, he might've been prepared. And we don't, you know, because Truman was so successful, we don't have the case study of a man who was ill-prepared for a very important moment, um, you know, not kind of getting up to speed. In the case of Andrew Johnson, Andrew Johnson was very well informed of what was going on. He just had terrible policies and we paid a hundred plus year price for it. In the case of Truman, he just literally had no idea what was going on. Um, so uh, so I think preparedness is, 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 is important um, uh, and that's something that, that could easily be revised. Absolutely. And really in all of them, the only one that you that kind of came through in the book as the, the role of the vice presidency was a little different was with LBJ. You know, he was given the chance to go abroad and and get involved in foreign policy. And he kind of messed that up. It was a disaster. And exactly. He's handing out passes to the Senate to like kids on the street in Vietnam. He and he, he 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 invites a camel driver in Pakistan to come visit him in Washington. And then the camel driver actually shows up. <laughs> I love it. And, and and that's, and the only other one that I could really see was like TR because he's, he was just such a personality, but I almost think that he would have been spending more time preparing for the next presidential run than really being focused on, well, how can I make the vice presidency different? How can I make a role for myself? I think he would, he would still be thinking about that next role. Yeah, it's, and, but also remember for most of our history, the president, it, it was taboo for the president to canvas. Uh, so the president didn't campaign for themselves for the most part. Um, and it was taboo uh, for the president to be involved in the vice president's selection. That doesn't happen really until 1960. Um, so so to, to, to absolve them of some responsibility is you, you could say the party should have given it more, should have given it more thought. Uh, but the candidates still were not really choosing who their number two was. The one that's a really interesting story to me is, is Calvin Coolidge, um, because th there were basically two vice presidents um, 
in history, discounting like the last, you know, five or six, who had a decent relationship with the um, uh, with the president. One was Garrett Hobart, um, who died in office creating space for TR, but that's because he was McKinley's financial advisor. And then the other was Calvin Coolidge, who by all accounts, he's the only one of the accidental presidents that didn't have a contentious relationship with their with their predecessor. You know, and Coolidge was even invited to cabinet meetings, even though he wasn't formally a part of the cabinet. What what's and what's interesting is it becomes a vulnerability for Coolidge. So Harding is the most scan the Harding administration is the most scandalous administration in history. And I, I write about this extensively in, in the book where you have you know Teapot Dome, massive oil crisis, a massive scandal at the Veterans Bureau, and an attorney general and justice department uh, involved in everything from fight fixing and stock ma manipulation to um, being like loosely tied to fishy suicides and bootlegging. Um, you know, so so very shady. But Harding dies enormously popular, and Coolidge is the only accidental president to ascend to the presidency with less than a year to go before a presidential election, the election of 1924. So Coolidge sees the fact that he actually had a seat at the table and had a reasonably cordial relationship with Harding as a major vulnerability, because when these scandals break on his watch, how is he supposed to win an election less than a year away? So he has a self-reflective moment where he decides that he everyone views him as a non-entity and he decides to double down on that. And he very carefully creates this image of Silent Cal, a man so boring and so insignificant that he couldn't possibly have been in the loop enough to have any idea what was going on. And it works. And he simultaneously pioneers broadcast radio from the Oval Office. Um, so I mean, it's just this it's, he's, he's this fascinating story that I think is um, is misremembered in our in our history. Absolutely. Well, and um, I, I know our time is growing short. Uh, so I had one other question that I wanted to ask you, and especially um, speaking from your uh, non-presidential history life and career, um, how do you envision that technology will change the course of history research in the coming decades? You know, we're seeing more primary resources being digitized, um, more things becoming available online. How do you see that that will change history research? Um, I'm very excited about it. And I, I actually think I can speak, you know, with some degree of, of authority on this because I'm old, I was only able to write this book because of two things. One, um, on the heels of historical giants who spent decades doing the archival research and writing amazing secondary resources, secondary um, sources and, you know, capturing a lot of the primary source material and two, the just volume of uh, archives that are put online. Like the Library of Congress has every periodical from 1840 online. So I have these very colorful scenes in the book of brawls in Congress and, you know, explosions, explosions on board the USS Princeton where I'm able to pull from periodicals of the era and firsthand eyewitness accounts. I couldn't have done that, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. So to answer your question, I think what's exciting about the era of technology and history is it lowers the barrier of entry to who can be involved. Um, the good news is I think the scrutiny over good history um, isn't going to isn't going to go down. So, you know, you know, I think that the quality control will happen from the real from the real historians. But look, I, I think, you know, it's good to have young people interested in history. It's good to have young people writing history. And I've been really excited about the warm embrace that I've gotten from all the acclaimed historians who are excited to see that, you know, somebody recognizes the world is not just driven by computer science and 
the future and innovation, but that if we want to understand where we're going, we need to understand where we came from and where we are today. And history is paramount for that. If I look at a lot of the problems that we're encountering today, um, you could argue that some of it rests in a general myopia about our history. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there, there's just so much that we can learn and bring forward into the present day. And, and like you, I'm, I'm fascinated by how connected we're able to get to sources, to other work that's already been done. And I think we're going to see, you know, in, in the, the next few decades, amazing works coming out and amazing insights into history that will hopefully help to inform us and help us to all work together to build a better world. So, well, Jared, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the show. Um, congratulations on the book and um, wish you much success and, and thank you so much again. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you'd like to see the sources used for this episode or catch up on past episodes, visit the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. If you have any questions or comments, send them my way via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.